Good morning. It is great to be with you on this July Sunday. Um, there's some good news coming up about the forest and camps and stuff, but I'll leave that to Curtis. He'll pass that on here in a little bit. But uh, we do, we do and, uh, really encourage you to continue to pray for rain here in our parched land because it's important in so many different ways. Also, I want to draw your attention to what's coming up next month. Our ladies' retreat will be going on here in August. Uh, there are flyers all around the building that I would encourage ladies for you to pick those up. Share them with your friends, invite them to be a part of that event. And if you haven't yet registered to be a part of that, I'd really encourage you to do that as well. Go online and sign up. If you're not comfortable signing up online, call the church office and we, that's not true, we won't do that. They will do that. Mary Louise and Judy will sign you up. I won't use that royal we, they'll be glad to do that for you. But please get registered so they can start to plan for how many people will be there, how much food to have and all those kind of things. But Please keep this event in your prayers. It's uh, promising to be a a great event, and it's going to be transformative in the lives of many people. So keep that in your prayers. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series from the book of Romans. We're nearing the end of that series. We'll be spending most of our time in the 15th chapter of Romans. This will be a great time to pick up your Bible and turn there. Romans chapter 15. So the last couple of Sundays in this series, we've focused our attention on unity, unity within the church, unity within the church, unity among brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's going to be our focus one last time this morning. And even though we're near the end of Paul's letter and Paul devoted almost all of chapter 14 and he's devoting much of chapter 15 to unity among brothers and sisters in Christ, this isn't the first time that the topic of unity has come up in his letter to the church in Rome. In fact, unity is a recurring theme in this letter and it's a recurring theme in all of Paul's letters. If you'll remember back in chapter 6, Paul reminded us that the beginning point and the ending point of unity is our relationship in Jesus Christ. Paul told us that in baptism we've been united with Christ in his death. And now that we have been united with him in his death, we also look forward to being united with him in his resurrection. Paul phrased it this way in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. He said, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then he goes on to say, if we have been united with him like this in his death we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And then later on in chapter 12, Paul makes the connection between being united with Christ and being united with each other. And the connection works this way. If we truly have been united with Jesus Christ, then we will seek unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So in Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, Paul said, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And then in verse 16, he says, Live in harmony with one another. And in verse 18, he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with 
everyone. And then the last couple of weeks, as we moved into chapter 14, we heard Paul tell us about the links that brothers and sisters should be willing to go in order to keep unity within the church. In chapter 14, verse 1, he said, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. In verse 13, he said, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. In verse 15, he said, Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And then in verse 19, he said, Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Live at peace with everyone. Accept one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Make every effort to do what leads to peace with one another. Paul seems pretty serious about this whole unity thing, doesn't he? So why does Paul put such a strong emphasis on unity within the church as he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome? Well, one possibility could be that lack of unity was a particular and maybe unique issue in that church in Rome. Maybe this volatile combination of those meat-eating, festival-avoiding, law-ignoring Gentiles when they're mashed together with the vegetable-eating, festival-attending, law-following Jews, maybe they had a unique problem with unity. So Paul's addressing it with them and them alone, but other churches like us don't really need this whole unity lecture from Paul. That's a possibility, but that's not true. We know from Paul's other letters to other churches, and we know from history, both ancient history and modern history, and we know enough about ourselves to be certain that Rome's specific problems may have been unique to them, but their general problem in finding and maintaining unity was in no way unique. So Paul's mind was on unity Because division and dissension within the church is so prevalent and because it's so dangerous and because it's so damaging. And in case you think I'm exaggerating or maybe overstating the case about the importance of unity, I want to take you back in time. I want to take you back to someone else who had unity on their mind. In fact, I want to take you to the mind of Christ I want to take you specifically to what was on the mind of Christ in the last few hours of his life. Let me start this way with a question. Where would your mind be if you knew with no uncertainty, if you knew with no doubt at all that you only had a few hours left to live? Where would your mind be? I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be checking the TV listings. I don't think I'd be surfing the web. I don't think I'd be watching YouTube videos. I'm confident that if I knew with absolute certainty that I was in the last few hours of my life, that would narrow my mind's focus. It would narrow my mind's focus to the few things that are truly important. Narrow the focus to what I really care about, things like family and Friends, 
Here's another question for you. If you knew with absolute certainty that you only had a few hours left to live and you were drawn to pray, what would you pray about? Who would you pray for? Where would your praying mind be? Well, in John's gospel, we get to see where Jesus' mind was in his last hours. And we get to see where his praying mind was in his last hours. John, in chapter 17 of his gospel, records for us Jesus' extended prayer just before he was arrested and then led off to be crucified. And Jesus' mind was on three primary things. Number one, his mind was on the glory of God that was about to be revealed on the cross. Number two, his mind was on the disciples, the disciples that were with him at that time and on their future. And number three, his mind was on us. It was on you and me. It was on those disciples who were still to come, who were yet to come. And in this prayer that John records for us. John also lets us know that Jesus' mind in his last hours was also on unity. So the mind of Christ was on unity. As Jesus is praying for his disciples that are there with him, in verse 11 he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and, and I'm coming to you So, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus prays that they, the disciples, will be one as we are one, as Jesus and God are one. That his disciples' unity will mirror the unity that he has with the Father. And then as Jesus is focused on us, on his disciples still to come, he prays this in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, not for just for the disciples who are here. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Jesus prays that all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus is praying that all of us may be one, just as God is in Jesus, just as Jesus is in God they may be one as we are one. So why this emphasis on unity? Well, because that's where the mind of Christ was, and that's where the mind of Christ is. It's on our unity. And if unity is on the mind of Christ, it shouldn't surprise us that unity was also on the mind of Paul. And if unity was on the mind of Christ, shouldn't our minds follow his mind? And if that isn't reason enough to focus on unity, in this same prayer, Jesus reveals another reason why he was focused on unity and why we should be as well. 
why the focus on unity? Well, in verse 23, Jesus prays, may they, he's talking about us, may we be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Why this focus on unity? Well, because the quality of our unity is our testimony to the world. Our unity is how the world learns about our Lord and our Master. So Jesus prays that we may be brought to complete unity. Why does he want us to be brought to complete unity? To let the world know. To let the world know what? To let the world know that you have sent me, that Jesus is truly from God. To let the world know that you have loved me. And to let the world know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus' desire, Jesus' prayer is that we may be brought to complete unity so that our unity testifies to the world that we are loved by our Father God. In the very same way that God loves his son, loves Jesus the Christ. And if that's what our unity, if that's what unity within the church testifies to, what does disunity in the church testify to? What does disunity say about the church? What does disunity say about us? But more importantly, what does disunity say about our God and about our Savior? So why this emphasis on unity? Well, it's because the mind of Christ is on unity. And because the quality of our unity is our testimony to the world about our Father and about His Son. So we can all get behind that, right? We can all get behind unity, can't we? I mean, I think we can all agree that if our unity is important to Jesus and that if our unity determines the quality of our witness to the world, I think we can all agree that since those things are true, then unity in the church should be important to us as well. I think we can all agree on that. But I think we can also agree on this. I think that we can agree that intellectually acknowledging that our unity is important is much easier than each of us individually taking those often difficult personal steps that are necessary to make unity a reality, to make unity actually happen. See, it's easier for me to agree that we should be united than it is for me to actually stop passing judgment on you. It's easier for me to intellectually agree that we should be united than it is for me to actually stop looking down on you. And I know this for sure, it's definitely easier for me to agree that our unity is important than it is for me to be willing to give up something that I have every right to do for you. So why would we do that? Why would we willingly give up something and use Paul's language, food or drink or anything else? Why would we give up what we have the freedom and the right to do? Let's see what Paul had to say about that. Romans 15 verse 1. 
He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So why on earth would we willingly give up something we have every right to do? Well, Paul says, first of all, you would do that because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to do good for your brothers and your sisters. It's an opportunity to strengthen them. It's an opportunity to build them up. So why would we do that? We would do that because it's good for our brothers and sisters. And secondly, we would willingly give up our rights because even Jesus, even God in the flesh, our Lord and Master, was willing to give up his rights to do good for us, to strengthen and build us up. I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. And a third reason why we would be willing to give up our rights is because it's our Father's will that we do so. It's our Father's wish, our Father's desire. His desire is that His children will willingly sacrifice their rights for the good of their brothers and sisters. Once again, we look to Jesus for our example. And Jesus defined his mission and his ministry this way in John chapter 6. He said, I have come not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. We would willingly give up our rights because it's our Father's will. And the fourth reason that Paul gives us for why we should be willing to give up something we have every right to do is because of everything that has been written in the past. All scripture. All scripture teaches us. All scripture points to unity through Jesus Christ. That's not only the point that Paul makes here. It's the point that he made in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Listen to what he said there. He said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, everything in scripture points to Jesus Christ. Everything written teaches us that Jesus came to earth to reconcile, to reunite all things to God and in God. And if we want to look and see if that reconciliation mission is evident anywhere in our world, it should certainly at least be evident in Jesus' church. 
And the way that Jesus went about his reconciliation, the way he went about his reunification mission was by giving up his rights for us. Which is why we should be willing to give up our rights to bring peace and unity to the church. That's what Paul is saying in that great scripture we read earlier from Philippians chapter 2. Paul said, your attitude should be the same. Your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. It could read this way. Jesus Christ having all the rights of divinity did not choose to hang on to those rights. But instead, he chose to make himself a servant. So why would we be willing to give up something we have every right to do for the sake of unity? Well, because Jesus is our example. Jesus is our pattern. And Jesus willingly gave up his divine rights to reunite us with our God. See, true unity doesn't come about by having a unity mindset. It comes about by having a Christ-like mindset. True unity, real unity, comes to the church as a byproduct, as a result of all of us seeking to follow Jesus Christ. If we seek out the mind of Christ, unity will follow. And not only will unity follow, unified worship will follow. Let's listen again to Paul now in verse 5. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's Paul saying? He's saying that our worship of God, especially our corporate worship, what we came here this morning to do, he's saying that that will not be what it was meant to be unless there is unity in the church. And that should be a sobering thought for us. Just at, like at times in its history, Israel's worship of God was nullified by the way they treated each other. Our worship of God can be nullified by the way we treat each other. What's Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying that acceptable praise to God can't come out of the same mouths that are condemning their brothers and sisters. He's saying acceptable worship to God can't flow out of the same hearts and same minds that are looking down on our brothers and sisters. Worship will not be what it was meant to be unless there is unity. So what do we do? Well, we willingly give up our rights so we can build each other up and so that we can do the will of God. And so that we can follow the example of Jesus Christ. And so we can worship in unity as we were meant to. But Paul doesn't even stop there. 
Paul also tells us that true unity in the church requires even more of us. Even more than just being willing to give up our rights for each other. He also says we have to be willing to accept one another. And that's an even more difficult command, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to give up my rights for you when I disagree with you. It's another thing and a more difficult thing to then turn around and accept you, to turn around and embrace you, to not put any distance or barrier between you and me as a result of my disagreeing with you, and certainly as a result of my having to give up my freedom for you. So why on earth would we do that? Why would we not only be willing to give up our rights for each other, but then also turn around and accept and embrace one another? Well, in answer, Paul once more points to Jesus. In chapter 7, he says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So why accept each other? Why embrace that brother with whom you disagree? Why embrace that sister for whom you gave up your rights? And for Paul, the answer is really quite simple. He says we accept others because Jesus Christ accepted us. And we accept others because when we do so, especially when we embrace those with whom we have disagreements, and especially when we embrace those for whom we gave up freedoms. When we embrace each other, when we accept each other, it brings praise to God. It brings praise to God because we're doing His will, because we're following in the steps of Jesus, because we're demonstrating that we too have the mind of Christ. I mean, after all, how... Did Christ accept us? Well, he accepted us with all of our sins. He accepted us with our prejudices. He accepted us with our blind spots. He accepted us with our weaknesses. He accepted us with our stubbornness. He accepted us with our quirks. He accepted us with our baggage. And that's just my personal partial list. We could go on and on. Jesus accepted and embraced us. Jesus gave up his rights and his freedom, and he died for us in all of our disagreeableness. So then how can we turn around and refuse to accept and embrace our brothers and sisters? Even those that we disagree with on disputable matters. Well, where does that leave us? So what? Well, let me end with just four quick implications of what Paul has taught us this morning. Number one, and this is for those of us who think that we are mature, strong Christians, for those of us who think we're fairly Christ-like, if we're unwilling to give up our rights for others, Maybe we aren't so mature and so strong and so Christ-like after all. Number two, related to that, when we truly look at the example of Jesus Christ, we need to admit that when we say, I cannot give up my rights for others, 
what we're really saying is I will not give up my rights for my brothers and my sisters. The question isn't if we can. The question is if we will. Well, number three, and this is good news. Jesus Christ is not only the pattern of our unity efforts. Jesus Christ is also the power of our unity efforts. Jesus hasn't called us, and Paul isn't calling us to do the impossible. No, when Jesus went to the cross, he not only showed us how to sacrifice ourselves for others, he also unleashed the power of his spirit to give us the strength and the power to sacrifice ourselves for others. Which leads us to number four. Let us, with our eyes on Jesus and powered by his spirit, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification within the Lord's church. Let's pray. Father, our mind is on the mind of Christ, who even in his last hours was thinking about us and was concerned about us and was praying for our unity our unity so that we can be who we are called to be and so that others may look at us and see the love that you had for your son, Jesus Christ, and the love that you have for us. And so, Father, our prayer is that we may be united as one. May we be united as you are united with your son, Jesus Christ. May he be in us. May we be in him. May we be in each other so that the world may look at us and know that we are children of yours, so that our testimony is that you are a God of unity, so that others will come and be a part of this as well. And Father, we pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, I want to end by giving you our uncomfortable challenge number 28 of the year. This is an effort challenge. My challenge to you this week is to identify at least one area, and we all have at least one area, an area in which you need to make an effort to do what leads to peace in your church family. Identify at least one area, but don't just identify it, then make that effort and do it so that we may be united as one. Let's end by standing and let's worship in unity.